Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 27, Meet Cute, Take 2, where we will be looking at chapters 58 and 59 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of The Friend Zone. Dun dun dun. As a refresher, each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text, with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though we're not opposed to such an arrangement should it become available. Secondly, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you've read the main books as well as the ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, a word to our community. While it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we're not going to stand for any abuse of the author. We're all just trying to do as best we can these days. So now it is time for Phoenix to give us a 45-second recap of our reading today. 45 seconds might be too much, based on the fact that this is very, very short, and I think there will be no raspberries. Famous last words. You ready? (laughs) Yes. All right. In three, two, one, go. Both flirts with Dena, who of course was his Aloine. He tries to impress her with courtly manners while attempting to figure out something intelligent to say. He crushes on her, ignoring the next performer. She's nice to him and playful in return. Savoy interrupts them, hoping to resume his date with Dena. Kvoth and Dena ignore Savoy until Kvoth finally gets the hint and leaves awkwardly. Kvoth, Sim, and Will spend the rest of the night in their cups and float back home to the university on a sea of alcohol. 29 seconds. You made it. I could have said my time limit was 30 seconds, and I'd have been fine, but I am not that boastful. 29.78 to be precise, so you would have been cutting it very close. I would have spoken faster. (laughs) All right. So with that out of the way, let's dive in. This section is primarily concerned with the second meet-cute between Denna and Kvoth and Frankly, I think these two are dinguses. (laughs) I mean, Denna makes a thing about how she went looking for him after the performance and couldn't find him. But he's the bright red-headed kid right down by the bar. That's pretty easy. For two hours. Yeah, stupid easy. And of course it would be dumb for him to go looking for her. And if she's just sitting here, why won't he come find me? Oh, good grief. Get over yourself. You know what's more likely? Because Quoth is the one telling this story. What's more likely is that Denna was enjoying her date with Savoy. That's actually probably the more accurate thing. And yeah, 
Ugh. I mean, Savoy is kind of gross around women. We know this. He does show a little bit of possessiveness, but it's not terrible and not something that is not understandable. It's not like he's Ambrose. I'm not talking about how he treats Denna, but for instance, how he treated the serving girl in previous chapters. I agree with that part. I'm saying that at least in terms of women that he respects, it's not that bad. <laughs> Let's go on and start talking about the chapter proper. So the thing that really got me, <laughs> I started reading this. And within the first couple of paragraphs, there was mention of how <laughs> they had met so long ago. And I just went so long ago, my ash. One of the things that got me is he says, and we were both of us so very young. And I want to say, speak for yourself, Quoth. <laughs> we don't actually have any idea how old Denna is. I get the impression she's older than Quoth because... Everybody is. And the fact that if she's 15, how long has she been a courtesan? And that's gross. This isn't Game of Thrones. <laughs> Old enough that we won't think, ew. <laughs> right, so I would really hope that she's older than Quoth. Agreed. Now, that kind of leads me to one of those theories of how old is Quoth at this point, the adult version of Quoth. How old would he be if he hadn't gone into the Fae in the Wise Man's Fear? Is he a lot older than we think he is? Is it more than a few years? Did he and Denna disappear off to the Fae for a long time and then age in the Fae and then come back and everything is like four days later? We won't know this until we have another book. Right. There could be some Freaky Fridaying involved. Yeah, so... Maybe they were both very, very young, and maybe now they aren't. Who knows? But at the same time, I mean, I'd say that the difference in how much you mature in age between 15 and 20 is massively different than between 32 and 37. That's true. 32 and 37 kind of collapse into each other at a certain point. There is a lot that changes between 15 and 20 so very young, yes. But I don't think that Denna is as young as Quoth thinks that she is. Also, she could be timeless. That is another theory. And one of the things that bothered me is he spends this huge run-up here describing how she looks and how he feels about all of this before she even gets a line of dialogue out. Ew. Like, he tries to make his feelings for her exceptional in a way that maybe they aren't really. Or maybe he's got a massive crush on her and she just is like, you know, you're a cute kid. She's trying to be nice to him. That's the thing. Not everyone who's nice to you is flirting with you. I'm nice to a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, and he's talking about just how he feels about her smiling at him. Like, he's the only one who's ever felt this way, ever. Okay, but to be fair, let's be really, really fair. When you meet someone and you have an instant attraction to them, you do get the butterflies in your stomach and you do feel like the rest of the world doesn't matter. I don't want to make it seem like having a crush on another person 
to the exclusion of noticing anything else in your view is necessarily bad. That's not what I'm trying to get at specifically. It's he tries to make it sound like he is the only one who has ever felt this way and the ways of describing it are insufficient because nobody else can truly understand how he feels. Right. I guess I understand that a little bit better. He has no empathy. Yeah. I don't like the constant use of if you haven't experienced this, you couldn't possibly understand how I felt. And it's a trait of quotes that I really dislike. Look, it's completely understandable to be a bit flummoxed by meeting someone that you're attracted to and the feeling you get when someone that you like reacts favorably to you feels great. I get that. I've been there. But it's not an exceptional thing. It's something that is normal to feel. Especially when you're recounting the story like five years later. At the time, I can understand having the reaction of you don't understand. This is special. But it's been years. To feel that way is not at all unusual. And you would hope that by the time Quoth is telling this story, he recognizes this. Yeah. Also, I have a question. In what world do you spend three days with someone and not tell them your name? Right? Right? What? <laughs> Hi, I'm Quoth. They had the equivalent of a camp fling, right? And at camp, you know their names. Right. <laughs> Also, did no one call her by her name? Did no one call him by his name? Did he not introduce himself to Josen? What? <laughs> yeah, none of that makes any sense. No. Anyway, we digress. That comes up later. Yeah, he's just a right idiot. I mean, he even says, I realize that this all sounds like a story, because it is, but... He recognizes well enough that foolishness and hyperbole and tripe are words to describe what he's saying, but he's still defending what he's saying as, but this was real. This is different, okay? <laughs> you couldn't possibly understand. No one has ever felt like I felt in the history of the world. I would actually posit that it's possible that every single person who could be attracted to Denna, anyone that's attracted to a woman, probably actually feels this way about Denna because I think that she is doing something like a succubus a little bit or like a siren. I feel like she is heightening everyone's attraction to her. So later on in The Wise Man's Fear, she has braided her hair to say beautiful in Yiddish. I think that that's some form of influence. Well, and he does compare her with Felurian. That would fit with your theory. It would. In fact, if she is Felurian, I don't know how I'd feel about that. I really don't think that that's true. But she might be a little fey around the edges. One of the things that I thought was kind of funny is when Kvothe says, you have a good ear, that's a great little callback to Bass' comment about her in the previous section where he goes, she has nice ears. 
I just <laughs> thought that was a great little bit. <laughs> That's cute. And they do fall back on the sort of Starfleet captain style of flirting where it's just quoting literature at one another. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but that's adorable. I mean, everybody knows that to captain a starship, one of the first things they make you do is memorize all the great books so that you can drop an extemporaneous quote whenever it's appropriate. How else are you going to converse with an opposing captain than by quoting Shakespeare at them? Even if that opposing captain is a Klingon. Hey, Shakespeare is even better in the original Klingon. I guess, actually, now would be an interesting and good time to kind of talk about our meet-cute. Yeah. Because this is a short chapter, and you know what? Y'all listen to us. Two episodes ago was an hour and a half. You can deal with a couple of minutes of us talking about how we've started dating. <laughs> <laughs> We'd known each other through mutual friends when we lived in Spokane. And so... A few years later, when I was living in Medford, Oregon, and Will was living up north near Seattle, he was planning on going to PAX, which is Penny Arcade Expo. It's a gaming convention that happens, the original, in Seattle. I was specifically trying to get in touch with some of our mutual friends who typically aren't online very often. And I was told that Hey, yeah, you ought to reach out to Phoenix. She can probably get in touch with them for you. Because I was hoping to find someone who would split a hotel room with me. So I reached out to Phoenix and I said, Hey, are you able to get in touch with the guys? So by that point, both of them had been working overnights for a while and they'd kind of become recluses from the world. <laughs> and even though I lived less than a mile away from them, it was really hard to get a hold of them. At the time, I didn't realize what, what you were trying to do is try to find people that would split a hotel room with you. And when you found out that you wouldn't be able to get a hold of our friends, you said, hey, are you going to PAX? And then when you replied no, I said, well, you should go to PAX. And then I replied, I don't have any money, dude. And then I persisted and said, uh, you should go to PAX. And I persisted in saying, but I don't have any money, dude. I want to go, but... Mm. I said, you should go to PAX. And this was the last year that you could get tickets after the day they'd gone on sale. And so I did. I got tickets and then I'm like, yes, I'm going to go to PAX. And you said, hey, do you want to split a hotel room with me? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I should find out more about this guy that wants to share a hotel room with me. I mean, honestly, at that point, I was just expecting, yeah, we'd have separate beds and it would be. No big deal. Right. I mean, we have a lot of mutual friends that I really respect who used to be your roommates. I did check up on you a little bit to make sure that you weren't just some kind of freak. Well, I was some kind of freak, but not that kind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you weren't the creepy kind. And then the next time that I ran into our mutual friends that lived near me, I told them that I was going to go to PAX and split a hotel room with you. And they're like, okay, but doesn't he have a girlfriend? Yeah, they'd been out of touch for a while. <laughs> but I'm like, and? <laughs> yeah, it really was completely intending to be a platonic thing where it was an arrangement between friends. Yeah. Turns out, 
afterward. I wanted to get to know him a little bit better. So we started texting with one another a lot more. And I remember the thing that really made me go, well, yeah, you're charming. And I said something to the effect of, I wish I could do something or other. I don't remember what it was. And your response to me was, if wishes were horses, the world would be covered in horse shirt. It's something I still believe to this very day. And so we both agreed we didn't want to date anyone. And then we kept flirting with one another on texts. I eventually moved up to the Seattle area and Will was like, hey, you want to join my D&D group? And yeah, you came out and we made a character for you and everything. And it was a lot of fun. And then the next day we actually played. And then one of my friends refused to actually leave and kept trying to talk about Red Dwarf with you. <laughs> and... and a different one of your friends also flirted with me. Oh, yes, there was that. Yep. <laughs> and then at the end of the night the two of us were finally able to get some time just one-on-one -on -one. had a nice little kiss and we accidentally rang the doorbell oops and your roommate opened the door oops the thing about it is that we did have that cute exclude everything except for one another kind of moment and there was also some periods there where we just talked a little bit about some harder emotional things that we were going through. During all of this, I was originally recovering from a previous breakup, and I was on what I have since come to refer to as my New York sadcation. I had originally intended to take my girlfriend with me to New York and then drive down to the D.C. area for a friend's wedding. We broke up before that trip was set to go, so I went by myself. And there is something extremely lonely about being in a huge city where you don't know anybody at all, and you have no one to really talk to. That was when Phoenix started texting me, and she and I just chatted back and forth, and that was a balm on my soul during a time when I was not feeling great. I was feeling very alone, very by myself in this city of millions, all sorts of things to do. I just went back to my hotel room and I watched Seinfeld and Everybody Loves Raymond. It didn't feel good. I'm just sitting here incredibly conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm surrounded by all of these people and the only thing that's making me feel remotely comfortable is just hanging out by myself in a room where at least I'm by myself by choice and listening to Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld fetch about stuff. But yeah, she texted me and we'd talk back and forth and I was able to express how I was feeling and I didn't feel nearly as alone when she and I were texting. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how we were feeling, what we were doing, and she was a really great friend to me in that instant when I needed it most. And if our relationship had never progressed past friendship, and that was as deep as it got, I would still have counted myself deeply fortunate. I think it's important to be there for people. I think it's important to really listen and empathize 
rather than try to fix another person's problem, be a sounding board. And I wanted to provide that for you because I knew that that couldn't have been a fun time. I didn't know what I would do in that situation. I probably wouldn't have gone on the trip. Oh, I was committed at that point. I was one of the groomsmen, so I had to go. Ah. The wedding itself was actually pretty fun. I was surrounded by people that I actually enjoy, so that made it a lot easier. But we digress. The flirting goes on for a while. Denna mentions that she thinks Kvothe is kind of nuts, having relied on an audience member to help him with his song. She thought it was a mistake. And she almost didn't provide the voice for his Aloine. And he just kind of sits there staring at her with the hard eyes and the tongue rolling out of his mouth. Yeah, that really bugged me because he's essentially asking this other person to do all of this extra labor with no real benefit. Right, she didn't get all the accolades. She didn't get noticed by the entire crowd and handed money and what have you. I mean, consolation prize, date with Savoy. Yay. (laughs) Which, I mean, he could be charming in small doses. We don't know what the nature of their relationship is. But either way, like, you would think that Stanchion would say, hey, you were the other half of this performance. You also should be getting some pipes for this. Or at least recognition. Right. Where's your metheglin? Right. And then... It took two hours for him to go looking for the girl that saved his bacon. And still, she couldn't be bothered to just go meet him at the meet and greet area? A lot of other people did. Yeah. Again, my theory is she was actually enjoying her date. Speaking of her date, Savoy comes back. Awkward. Savoy seems to be insecure and puts his hand on her hip, puts his hand around her shoulders... All of these vaguely possessive moves that could be affectionate, but could also be creepy, depending on who is doing them. And it's also worth noting that as possessive as Savoy seems, Quoth thinks of her in the same possessive sense. Yep. He thinks of her as his Aloine, his lady, etc., when by all rights, he should be hers. (laughs) she's the only reason that he's having a great night even if they never met again even if he never found her she's the only reason he's got pipes i wouldn't say that she's the only reason because i don't think that he would have earned them had his string not broken and the aloine part be sung either way though she's a crucial part of his success that night speaking of the performance she says What can you do then, besides play so well that Taylor and his angels would weep to hear? Who wept? Aw, poor Sim. Is Sim one of Taylor's angels? I don't know. I don't even know who the angels are. I think those are more metaphor at this point. I agree, but it's something to look at. It's kind of funny. Stir the theory pot. I'm willing to say it's a literary device and it's an illusion as opposed to an actuality. I mean, I agree with you, but I like hearing the batshirt crazy theories and I like thinking them up. Oh, also, 
earlier in the first chapter where we meet Denna. Seriously, did he not refer to her with her name? I, I don't know. Anyway. Well, and he's also trying to play off this I haven't met you game. Because she doesn't remember me, so I can't act like I remember her. Which is stupid. These two are dinguses. These two are dinguses. But he is mildly, only mildly, impressed with her knowledge of plays and songs. And he felt something that was approaching respect in one part. <laughs> I'm just like, what? Approaching respect for her. Narcissist. And if you look at the actual content of their conversation here, it's pretty light. Oh, yeah. Most of it is she says something, you know, maybe she quotes a line or whatever. He catches the quote and references it, playing Starfleet captain. And then they dicker back and forth about, oh, what can I do to make up my debt to you, etc. And then Savoy shows up. They give one another some... Fairly superficial compliments. You sang nice. You sang nice. Aw. <laughs> Good grief. This is nothing terribly meaningful or deep. This is pretty surface level. You don't get to write this off like this is the ultimate pair of star-crossed lovers or anything like that. This is just two kids. The thing is that their first meet-cute was way cuter than this meet-cute. Granted, we don't even know what they actually said because they just talked about nothing. And here, they continue to talk about nothing. I mean, that is their relationship. But Quoth loves to make something out of nothing. And then Savoy just stares daggers, going, Okay, so I took her out to dinner. Yeah, she sang for you. Could you just leave now? Without being rude. Goodbye, Quoth. Right. <laughs> it was nice to see you. Go away. <laughs> Which is understandable. It's the same way that we felt about our friend who just kept talking about Red Dwarf with me. <laughs> both of us were like that. We're both like, okay, this conversation doesn't need to continue. Go away. This is nice. See ya. I'd like time alone with the person that I came to see. Yeah. Take the hint. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he stayed for a good hour, it felt like. I don't think it really was that long. And the reason that I don't think that it was that long is because both of us were just anxious to have time with one another. I don't think he ever really got the hint. I also don't think it's in his nature to get such hints. Fair enough. Also, apologies to the podcast audience for any of the vomit that is now all over your floor and or possessions. Maybe we should include a bucket warning before these. <laughs> Too late. After that rather frustrating example of, I don't know, because there wasn't a resolution to, of course she knows who you are, dolt. There... <laughs> Who forgets, six months later, who forgets spending three days with someone, especially like someone that is so memorable that they took the guy who was flirting with you, like took that person's loot and played it better than the guy did. 
and embarrassed the crap out of the guy that you were going to Annalyn with, Denna offered to take Quoth with them. Quoth is not someone who avoids being noticeable. He constantly does things that put him at the center of everyone's attention. Of course they're going to remember him. Especially if it's six months later. Six months is nothing. It's May now. It has been May forever in either direction. <laughs> but it is May as we record this. Which means that six months ago was December. I can remember Christmas. I can remember Thanksgiving. Hell, we recorded <laughs> an episode that I can mildly remember talking about. Because <laughs> we were talking about how we were excited for Thanksgiving to come along. And how we were a little bit nervous that our cats were going to be a little off-putting to people who aren't used to cats being on the table. <laughs> Not during the dinner, but like, they do hang out on the table. They do. So, I mean, who <laughs> forgets? If I go to a meeting at work, and I meet someone at said meeting that I've never met before, and then I never see them for another six months, and then I see them again at another meeting, I will remember that, oh, yes, you. We were in that last meeting together. I recognize the name. I recognize the face. Oh, but of course they don't know each other's names. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> this whole part just kind of makes me go, what? Let us move on to the tiny chapter and then on to the rest of our episode. In all of this, as soon as Denner resumes her date with Savoy in earnest, you can see that Quoth feels a little bit disappointed to be left in the friend zone. And then after this, we get a brief little description of the rest of his night with Will and Sim. And the final paragraph is, The three boys, one dark, one light, and one, for lack of a better word, fiery, do not notice the night. Perhaps some of them does but they are young and drunk and busy knowing deep in their hearts that they will never grow old or die. They also know that they are friends and they share a certain love that will never leave them. The boys know many other things, but none of them seem as important as this. Perhaps they are right. Before we continue on to the nice and heavy thing, I do want to point out that being left in the friend zone is stupid in terms of framing for your own sake. If you want to date someone, but you would not be happy being their friend, you do not want a relationship with them. You want to fork them. And that's just it. Being friends isn't consolation. Consider the case of Will and Sim, whom Quoth here admits that he shares a love for them. Even without that romantic context, that in and of itself, that love that they share for one another is a real and powerful and valuable thing. Again, I go back to that period where I was alone in New York and you did something that I needed as a friend. And if that's the extent of where our relationship was, if that's the furthest it went, as just friends who do that kind of thing for one another, I would consider myself the luckiest person in the world. You know, I mean, to have a friend is a great thing. I know. I have a lot of friends who are people that in other circumstances 
I might want to pursue as a romantic relationship or a romantic partner. And that doesn't mean that I am upset that that's not where our relationship is or has gone. I love them. I have very deep bonds with some people who I would never be able to be in a romantic relationship with, and they are people whose gender I am attracted to. As someone who is attracted romantically to all genders, am I not supposed to have friends? Or am I supposed to lament the fact that not every single person that I am friends with is someone that I am romantically involved with? There are different kinds of love, and they're all good. They're all valuable. And the thing that they share is a concern about the other person's well-being and being willing to make sacrifices for that other person. And this doesn't matter if it's familial or romantic or platonic. All of this is shared by a profound concern about the other person and a profound sense that this other person is of value. So I'm looking at how Will and Simon Quoth are kind of feeling about one another on their way back to the university. And this is a pure bit that is just nice and sweet and it's gentle and it's something that is also incredibly powerful. I do believe that you can be in a deep friendship without having to delve into each other's pasts if you can be friends that are just about the present. But that also involves knowing someone's likes and dislikes, knowing someone's attitudes towards events that are going on right now, knowing how they take the things that you say and how it affects them, knowing how they feel about other friends, knowing how they feel about their pet, knowing how, how they treat a waitress. I think that you can be friends and have a deep bond with people without having to ask them about what happened in their life before you were in it. But I don't think that Kvothe and Denna have a deep friendship, ever. Everything that they do is very superficial and Kvothe never seems to express true concern for her. She is the recipient of some concern trolling insofar as, well, I don't like that you're a courtesan, so my concern for you is that I don't like what you're doing. That's different than going and saying, okay, well, this person doesn't treat you well. Can I be a sounding board and help you figure out how to make sure that you are not treated poorly in the future? Yeah, he doesn't do a whole lot of listening. Or even if the person is refusing to concede that they are being treated poorly, even as they're describing things that are definitely them being treated poorly, you know, just being there for them, not trying to force your values on them. He doesn't need to white knight for her. He just needs to be there as a friend who will listen to her. And if she asks for help, when she asks for help, figure out what she is actually asking for instead of trying to assume that anything that you do for her is exactly what she needs. Also, grand gestures are not always the best option. I'm reminded of a quote from John Hodgman, which is, 
The help someone needs is not always the help you want to provide. Kvothe doesn't really know this. Right. If all you do for the other person is the grand gesture, that is, look at me, I did an awesome, you're not really doing it for the other person. Yeah, you're doing it for the feeling you get when they say thank you. But if that's not the help they need, you haven't actually helped. You may have helped in the moment. You really could have. In terms of the story, when Quoth gets Denna's ring back from Ambrose, it is something that she didn't ask for. If it was of extreme value to her, she would have probably eventually found a way to get it back. If she figured that interacting with Ambrose was definitely not worth getting that back, because I've been there, there are some possessions that I had when I was a kid that I no longer have because the person who is in possession of them is a person that I have no desire to ever interact with again. And that's fine. They're things. All right, so back to a more cheerful wrap-up. I like the image of Sim and Will and Quoth stumbling back across the bridge, arm in arm, singing, laughing, being carefree. Quoth just earned his talent pipes. They should be celebrating. I'm glad that they did. If I found chapter 58 frustrating, I found chapter 59 for all of its half of a page to be a nice breath of fresh air. I like the imagery. I like the camaraderie. It feels for once like Foth is caring and connected to his friends. It calls to mind my college days, you know, where I had friends who, and I'm still close to them to this very day, where you could have that really deep, close emotional bond and you could just be in the moment with these people and know that you're there for one another. You know, they are able to express their emotions and they're able to express joy and sadness and heartache and excitement. And all of these true emotions, you know, whether they are pleasant or not, and you're able to just be. And I think what's notable is in this brief half page, Patrick Rothfuss does a better job of capturing what actual love is like than he did in the entire preceding 18 pages. I agree. I'd also say better than he did in most of the rest of the series. Yes, exactly. This is so good. And I think it's little sections like this that make this book truly worth it. Absolutely. The theories and the unresolved mysteries and the details are all well and good, but it's when you get these glimpses of actual character development and bonds, the book itself has heart, even as some of the relationships within it are lacking. Well, and it's these deep relationships between characters that power a good story. I mean, I look at Lord of the Rings, which on its surface is a fairly basic narrative, but what really makes people come back to it is the relationship between Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin. It's that sort of begrudging 
friendship that develops between Legolas and Gimli. Those are the things that turn it from just a story of how the hero gets from point A to point B into something that you want to come back to and relive. And I would say that there's a few different things that make really good stories really good stories. But if you don't have any of them, then you're kind of sunk. Relationships between people make a good story. Mysteries can make a good story. Also, there are a lot of really evocative things that I have read that don't even have people in them. One that's all about a house falling apart due to decay, due to entropy. It doesn't have relationships, but it makes a relationship between the house and the reader. I think also it comes down to our relationship as readers with Quoth as the character. I think even as he tends to be a bit of a dingus, he is an extremely relatable dingus. We've all been young. And much like when I originally watched the Gilmore Girls, I had a very clear and strong bond, for lack of word, with Rory. Because I was around the same age as the main character, Rory, around 16, when I started watching that show. I rewatched it when I was in my 30s. And as an adult, I sympathized so much with not only Lorelai, but also Emily, because Lorelai still has some of those tendencies to stomp her foot and leave the room in a tantrum. Still relatable. Not going to say it's not. But I guess the first time I read through The Name of the Wind, I took everything in at face value. I felt a lot of kinship. I felt a lot of, oh my goodness, this is a stupid thing I would have done. And now even reading it for the fourth or fifth time, I'm looking at Kvothe and going, yeah, you're a dingus, but you're still a relatable dingus. It's not like we're perfect. And I don't want anyone to think that we think that we are. But I think that Kvothe needs to take some time, stop, take things in, do an inventory, and think before he acts. And I think with that, now that we're starting to make prescriptions on how Kvothe ought to be taking notes on things, it's time for us to talk about our Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. This time it is your turn? Yep. So this week, we don't have too many options. I mean, first of all, it's never Kvothe. We know that. It's obviously not Savoy. And Denna's not really actually saying much at this point in everything. It's just Kvothe's idea of her as a person more than an actual character. So we have only one logical option here. That is, of course... The old man playing the court lute. <laughs> <laughs> we could have chosen Will or Simmon, except I think because you forgot that we were covering that little itty bitty tiny chapter for a little bit, you didn't choose either of them. Because they don't actually have a whole lot in the way of action or dialogue in this section, though, I don't really want to include them as an option. So let's talk a little bit about the man with the court lute. So first of all, he's doing something incredibly difficult and brave by playing an archaic, complicated instrument in front of a large crowd. Now, we don't know if he has his pipes or not, but either way, he's taking a risk. He's putting himself out there to do something the hard way. As Quoth mentions, these things are absurdly complicated with engineering that would put any cathedral to shame. It's also something that takes 
an incredible amount of patience and skill just to even get in tune. Two days to string and two hours to tune for two minutes of music. According to Arladen, yes. Or more accurately, according to Kvothe's memory of what Arladen would have said. Meanwhile, he's dealing with two rude guests who insist on having a meet-cute while he's trying to get in tune and prepared. Oh, he probably can't hear them. It's a performing venue. Sound carries. Meh. And the third thing is the act of learning a historical instrument like this is something that a curious mind does. Not necessarily because they think that this will be easy or that this will sound better, but because they want to understand the principles at play and how things were done in a different era. It's the same impulse that drives people to try and master vintage cooking techniques or vintage crafting techniques. It's interesting to learn how people did things. And it's also a reminder that newer doesn't always mean smarter because the people who made the court loot while maybe it was not the optimal design, still had to expend a high degree of thought and careful planning just to make this work. So, yeah, I think that this guy is this unnamed person who we will never see again, or will we? Probably not. I think we will. Oh. I have a suspicion that we have seen him before and we will see him again. Who do you think he is? I think he's Cinder. Because this is an antique thing. This is an old thing. I think that that's a bat shirt crazy theory. And yet, it is mine. <laughs> but he's doing something brave and interesting, and he's experimenting with something. And I think that's something to be commended. And so with that out of the way... Much like our old man, we also are going to be doing some interesting learning about our world. And it's your turn for our interesting fact of the week. Alrighty. So, Will, is it fair to say that you're a big fan of solar energy for powering houses? Yes. Well, you might wonder why there aren't vast arrays of solar panel farms in sunny, arid places like the desert. Well, that's because solar panels don't work as well in extreme heat. The way solar panels work to produce electricity involves exciting electrons, which is way harder to do in a hot climate because those electrons are already excited from the ambient heat energy. The fact is, solar panels are best suited for temperatures under 77 degrees Fahrenheit or 25 degrees Celsius. However, as we know from living in a place where that's a temperature that is about average for the summer, Maybe a little higher here. It also means that those places tend to have more cloud cover. And moderate climates are also highly populated with people and buildings. So there's not a lot of places available within a moderate climate to set up a huge solar field. But over the past 20 years or so, countries around the world have started installing solar panels over crop fields in a system called agrovoltaics. The benefits of this include the crops being able to help keep the solar panels cooler due to the plants releasing water through their leaves. This process works a little like sweating as the moisture evaporates and cools the plants and surrounding area. 
Findings show that solar panels over cropland are about 3% more efficient than solar panels in the same region that aren't over cropland. Engineers have also taken this concept further by setting up solar panels over large bodies of water, a system called photovoltaics. I'm groaning right now. You can't hear it, but I'm groaning at that one. Which are typically cooler than nearby land masses. Okay, no raspberries for you today. Yay! <laughs> That's a good one. I, I'm really fascinated by the way that we take these challenges that you bring up and then try and find alternative ways to solve the problem. And I'm always interested by that. So that's cool. Thanks for sharing it. You're welcome. And with that, we come to our seven words. This time it is your turn to share seven words from the book. So what you got? So I have this. So I am left in your debt. And this is something that Kvothe says when Denna refuses to accept his pipes. And I think that's when you picked as well. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who can't see, because this is a podcast and it's all audio, I held up my book, which currently has the words, so I am left in your debt, highlighted in orange. And a photo of this will wind up on Instagram. So I found that this was kind of telling because Kvothe is approaching everything as a transactional nature, which makes sense given that he was, until about six months ago, living on the streets where everything is viewed transactionally anyway. And the nature of all of his relationships around the university are constrained by debt in one form or another. I can see how he might think that way. I would say even amongst people who aren't strictly lacking, there are certain people who do view every relationship, every interaction as transactional. And it's not really a good look on anyone. And I would say it's also something that's very common to the starting stages of a relationship where you're not sure how much you can trust the other person. And it's all well and good to accept that that's the start of the thing oh, hey, I want to make sure that I repay this thing that you did for me, is not the worst feeling to feel. It's not the worst thing to think. But if that's as deep as your relationship ever goes, then you're really robbing yourself of the opportunity to get to that unconditional portion. I don't necessarily think that this is the way he ought to be thinking about his relationship with someone he ostensibly loves, but there is some romance to it as well. One other one that I would like to point out, mostly because you didn't read chapter 59 initially for this episode, but I think that if you had, you may have chosen this. They also know that they are friends. That is a very good one. It's said about Will and Sim and Kvothe as they drunkenly walk back to the university. That little chapter brings a smile to my face. And... I know it's not my turn for seven words from the book, but I thought that that was fun to share. You thought correct. Thank you. So what do you have for seven words from life? I don't remember what was said, but I do remember the circumstances. Your dad had texted you to ask if you would have a conversation with him about the best choice in getting a new router to replace his currently failing one. And we were eating lunch you said something funny, 
while you were on the phone with him. And I just kind of, I said, but not loudly enough for you to hear, I don't think. Please don't make me spit take a banana. Well, that's one of the worst things to spit take. That's right up there with single malt scotch. Oh. <laughs> Although the viscosity of a banana makes it uniquely bad in its own way. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Nothing more to say about that. Just please don't make me spit take a banana. <laughs> well, that's very cute. <laughs> And with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you, audience, for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss Chapter 60 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of a false sense of security. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend, Shawnee Jang, for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get our show notes, early access to the podcast, and other exciting items. But seriously, if you can't afford anything on the Patreon we totally understand, but we would really love to have an interaction with you guys, whether that be feedback on our show through our Twitter account at WaystonePod or on our Instagram page at WaystonePod or a rate and review on Podchaser or any other podcast platform that you happen to subscribe to us with. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Now it's time for a 45-second recap of this week's chapter, courtesy of Phoenix. Chapters. It was a single chapter. Two chapters. Two chapters? Yes. I thought it was just one. No. You said 58. And 59. Did you say and 59? I, I did only, say and 59. I only read 58, so... You may read chapter 59. It's right here. All right. I... <laughs> this is the whole chapter. Oh, okay. <laughs>